HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meat and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India, and out there there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So last week was a really intense episode, in a good way. I think we really need to talk about the serious issues facing the food system. And when you're talking about farmers' livelihoods, things are going to get heated. It's going to happen. Um, this week, we're going to lighten things up a little bit because it's, it's hard to talk about hard things over and over. So we're going to talk about dairy goats, which are really cute. <laughs> and um, we have a special guest in the studio who is also very cute, my dog, Morris. <laughs> and I'm telling you this because I'm hoping he's quiet during the program, but, um, you know, if another dog walks by, we might have a little surprise um, soundtrack, so <laughs> we'll see. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, I'm going to introduce the show in a normal way in a second, but before I do that, um, I'm, I have a question actually for you, Suzanne, which I've been wondering. What do you think? Could he make it as a farm dog? Definitely. <laughs> I think maybe you're, you're lying a little bit. <laughs> 
I actually, let, let me tell one really funny story before we get into this, which is I had this, I was interviewing this legendary rancher a couple weeks ago for a Civil Eats story. His name's Will Harris. Um, he's in Georgia, and he has this amazing southern accent. He's been a rancher for 30 years. Um, and I'm interviewing him about this Farmers for a Green New Deal program, and I happened to be doing it from home, and Morris saw something outside and started barking, and Will said, oh, you got yourself a 10-pounder there, I see. <laughs> you can tell the size of my dog by how he's like, yep, and I'm, he's exactly 10 pounds. <laughs> it's like this guy really knows his livestock, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into today's episode. So um, at the line today, farmers are in the spotlight the way I think they should be all the time. That's because Fresh Farm, the organization that runs farmers markets across the mid-Atlantic, is hosting its annual fundraiser feast. Um, it's at the hotel in partnership with the restaurant Arake's Progress. So some farmers were in town to attend the event, so we got to bring a farmer from West Virginia into the studio. Suzanne Berman is owner of Shepherd's Way Creamery, which is a goat dairy farm and cheese-making operation. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, so I was reading a little bit about your farm, and you're not someone who grew up farming, right? That's correct. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up with a farm. Well, we moved out here, my husband and our four children from Southern California in 2001, wow. had never farmed, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to get a goat? <laughs> and quickly found out that goats are herd animals, so you have to have two, and of course they have to have babies before they produce milk. And by the time we had five, we had more milk than we could drink, and hmm. so we decided to learn how to make cheese. So for Christmas that year, I gave my daughter, Megan, a class. We drove up to Massachusetts and attended a three-day workshop with Jim Wallace at New England Cheese Making. And by then, we'd started making some in our house, in our kitchen. Yeah. And one thing led to another. So we founded Shepherd's Way Creamery in 2012. Wow. I mean, you make it sound like it's just the, the most natural thing in the world. Like, one day we had a goat, and then we had a farm, <laughs> and then we had a cheese-making operation. If I had known how hard it was when I started, I don't know that we would have... Continued. It was a lot more difficult than I imagined when I started. I'm a physical therapist and ah. um, gave up my practice to uh, to make cheese. And huh. I love it. Absolutely love it. That's an interesting background to have as a farmer, too, because farming is so hard on the body, right? Like, yeah, I wonder, as a physical therapist, do you think about that sometimes? It definitely has come into play, the skills yeah. that I learned as a PT. And also with the goats and dealing with any injuries or birthing, things like that, all that my training has come into play. Hmm. And also the sanitation and knowing about germ theory and all that really has effect in how we handle the milk and the sanitation required for cheese making. Right. Um, and where in West Virginia exactly is the farm? We're in the Eastern Panhandle, just about 10 minutes from Shepherdstown. Our address huh. is in Martinsburg, but we're on the, towards the Shepherdstown. Um, so we're just about an hour and a half from our market in D.C. We go to the DuPont Circle Farmers Market, and it takes me exactly one and a half hours to get there every Sunday morning. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I know you said, like, it would be fun to get a goat, but, but why a goat specifically? Why not another, you know, farm animal? Goats are amazing animals. Like, I didn't know as much, obviously, then as I know now, but they are smaller, and so they're a good choice, especially for women farmers. Um, they don't t require a lot of space. They're really smart and really personable. They all have their own personality, and they're easy for kids to manage. So when we started, we had, we had, when we first had two goats in milk, 
I would sit in the middle. We had two stands and one goat in each stand. And one of my kids would get on one side of the goat and I'd milk half and they'd milk the other half. Hmm. That's about all we could do before our hands were too tired. So yeah. They're, but they're a smaller animal, much easier than a cow where you have, you know, five or six gallons. Goats are giving you about a gallon a day, so about a half a gallon of milking. So it's much more approachable. Right. And you just described milking by hand. Do you, you don't still do it that way, do we you? We do still milk by hand. Wow. We did buy a machine a few years ago, and it can milk three goats at a time. But all my staff prefer to hand milk. And so, we, we, I mean, we're only milking 14 goats a day. So okay. it isn't a lot. And is it is it just like um, a cow dairy in that, like, do you milk twice a day? Mm-hmm. Okay. Milk morning to night, yep. Well, and, and it's it, you mentioned that you get so much less milk from a goat. I actually I started reading um, Mark Kurlansky's book, which is called Milk, recently, and I I remembered that that you know it's like something like I don't, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's a much small like basically he he's talking about the history of why we drink cow's milk, and one of the reasons is like well goats just don't produce the volume, you know. Um, but isn't that a challenge then for you, like as well, a as someone who needs to sell cheese and I, th- I think there's different traits, obviously, of goat's milk versus cow's milk, mm-hmm. but many more, many more people worldwide use goats for their source of dairy than cow milk. Um, they're much less, they're much more gentle on the land. They eat, obviously, a lot less. Um, they're much easier keepers, I think, than, than cows. And I get a gallon per goat per day, so... That's we um, three years ago we made the decision we actually were milking 36 a day um, to downsize our herd and to start buying some of our milk so a portion of our milk we buy from another goat dairy in the area um, and that's been a really good mix for us but the in terms of the rate what they eat compared to what they produce mm-hmm. goats are actually more efficient so. oh interesting mm-hmm. and. What do they eat? Because they're not like cows in that they can eat other things besides just grass, right? Um, the goats are, are traditionally browsers more than grazers, so okay. they do graze as well. Um, our goats have access to pasture all the time and access to forage. In, you know, we have a wooded area where they eat leaves and you know brush and twigs and branches and things like that. Um, they also we grow hay, and so they have access to hay all the time. They eat kelp. They get a grain ration when they come in the parlor to get milked when they're in milk. Um, so, why kelp? Um, it has it's rich in nutrients and rich in uh, minerals, particularly selenium, which our area is deficient in selenium. So that's a natural way for them to get selenium, and they love it. I mean, they just love it. So. Huh. That's so interesting. Have you been seeing the research that people are doing on if you add kelp to um, feed for cows, it actually reduces the methane that they emit? Really? I yeah. didn't know that. It's crazy. There's all this new research coming out. And so you might inadvertently be doing something. I don't know if actually, I don't know if um, goats release methane um, the way that cows do. Obviously, it would be less because they're tiny, but <laughs> um yeah, I'm not sure ex- exactly, but um, you, that is an interesting fact that yeah. if they're eating kelp, it's probably a good right. thing for they the environment. They also get a, um, every week they get a mixture of herbs for parasite management, it's mm. internal parasites, and so that also probably has some kelp in it. Huh, very cool. What about, um, I read somewhere that 
um, what the goats eat can affect the actual taste of the cheese. Absolutely, is that true? yeah. And I think that's true of cheese making worldwide. You mm. get the terroir, is that the right word? Yeah. Where you get the flavors of the environment that it's in and what it's eating. And like if the goats were to get hold of onion grass or things like that, it would greatly impact the flavor of the milk and therefore the flavor of the cheese. Right. So what and are there like different kinds of cheese you're making or like what does the actual cheese operation look like? Yes, we make 14 different kinds of wow. cheese. So we make a fresh cheese called Chev, which is what most people think of when you say when you goat, see cheese. goat cheese. Yeah. We make feta, we make um, bloomy rinds or soft ripened cheeses. Those are cheeses that have a skin. And that's a culture that grows on the outside of the cheese once they go into the cave. And they're ripe in about three to four weeks. And then we make some longer aging cheeses, including um, one of our, we have one alpine style cheese that we age a full year. Wow. So. What? It's funny, like the learning curve. So, I, you know, I talk to people absolutely. a lot about the learning curve in farming. And then also you're doing cheese making. So there's two totally separate processes that exactly. you kind of just jumped into. Yes. Now, I, I had a little bit more experience with the farming side of it before we started the cheese. Okay. We started the cheese in 2012, and we got our first goats in 2002. Mm. So it was about 10 years of raising goats oh, before wow. we started the creamery. Um, but absolutely, there's a learning curve, and I still feel like I'm way at the early part of hmm. that. As I learn all the time, I'm always reading. I go to a conference every year for farmstead cheesemakers or small artisan cheesemakers that I learn tons from. I've been to many workshops, so there's a lot of learning that goes into it. And it's fun because the further along I go, I'm learning much more, not the technical side of things, mm. but like how culture, what different cultures I choose, the impact that's going to have on the flavor. And if I want to achieve a certain flavor, I introduce a new culture and then watch and see what that does. Or maybe the length of time that I brine it or the temperature in the cave, um, those sorts of things all play a role in the flavor ultimately that you get in the end. Hmm. And so you're constantly learning, but when you know you said you sort of, you took this cheese class, I think you said your sister did. Was that enough in the beginning, like to just jump in? Like can you kind of just start doing it and then you learn as um, you go? In, there's a great organization up in Massachusetts called New England Cheese Making. Mm. There's several of them, but they were the first, and mm. they are all about home cheese making. So teaching you how to make cheese in your kitchen, and their at artists or their like expert cheesemaker Jim Wallace has put traveled the world and mm. tried all different kinds of cheese. He's a real cheese fanatic, and all the recipes are online with pictures. So when we started, we got a book, we got a video. And we ordered cheese cultures from them and cheese hoops and things like that, just a kit, and then started making in our kitchen. So it's very approachable on a small scale. All their recipes are scaled for two or three or four gallons of milk. And then when we went, became certified as a creamery, our cheese is made in, um, well, the most 45 gallons. That's, just, that's the maximum capacity of my pasteurizer and my vat, my cheese vat. So mm. most of my cheeses are done in 45-gallon batches. How, how much milk does it take to make cheese? It, generally, it takes 10 pounds of milk to make a pound of cheese. Okay. A gallon of milk is 8.6 pounds, so you figure it's a little more than a gallon of milk per pound of cheese. And my wheels vary. Um, my biggest wheel is about 16 pounds a wheel. My other wheels are about two and a half, and so they're everything in between. And then like our little bloomy rinds are maybe a half a pound or a quarter pound. Um, so they're much smaller. So 
Hmm. I want to, I'm curious about the investment that went into actually building out the more commercial mm-hmm. cheese making operation. Like, was that, was that a lot like to actually build out the facility? A lot you- more than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a um, organization or a company up in Maryland that makes um, micro dairy equipment called micro dairy design. And that was super helpful because it was smaller scaled and priced for the artisan small uh, cheese maker. So you didn't have to go buy like a giant. Right. You thing, go and yeah. price it and it's like $50,000 for $100,000 for, you know, a 200 gallon pasteurizer, which I would never, <clears throat> ever have that much milk at a time. And so um, that really helped. So my equipment, the pasteurizer and the cooling tank and my chart recorders and my uh, machine, little machine to bottle milk was about $21,000. Hmm. And then we spent, we totally spent about 150000 maybe on the building and on, you know, all the equipment and mm. the tables and the refrigerators and all that kind of stuff. So that was about our startup cost. We already had the herd of goats, so right. we didn't have to spend money on the herd. Um, and most of that, I'm almost, I'm getting close to being paid off my mortgage. Well, so. yeah, that, that was, my next question was going to be, so was that investment worth it in terms of, are you able to capture way more of the dollar rather than selling, you know, selling cheese instead of yeah. milk? For the first time last year, I wasn't in the red. Hmm. So this is our seventh year, and looks like I'm going to have a profit this year, but nowhere near enough to provide a living for me yet. So hmm. um, my husband has a full-time off-the-farm job, right. and that's what's kept us low. And I gave up a full-time or a part-time PT job, physical therapy job, so it's been a big financial hit for us. Um, it's because we love what we do. Right. But having markets like Fresh Farm does makes it possible because I can charge a, a, a cost for my cheese that is actually reflective of the cost to make it. Mm. So um, I am at this point eking out a profit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to I want to talk more about markets and. Um, and where you're selling the cheese. Um, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into that. Okay. Cabot Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. 
Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Suzanne Berman from Shepherd's Way Creamery. We've been talking about her goat dairy and cheese making. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about markets and and how you're selling the cheese. Um, But first, one thing that you said in the first half that I forgot to go back to was um, you said you didn't realize how challenging the whole thing would be. So what are what is the most what are the biggest challenges for you as a farmer and cheesemaker? I tend to be a stressor when, it, and so there's, I, I stress about goat health and making sure my herd is happy and, and strong and healthy and their hooves are trimmed and they're, you know, so I stress about that stuff, but mm. that's, that, I did that before. So, <laughs> but, and making sure that they're, I want to keep them healthy so they're happy, but also so they're producing milk so right. that I have the milk to make the cheese that I need um, and that it's healthy, good tasting, you know, clean milk. Um, the other piece of it, though, is um, all the different parts that can go wrong in cheese making. And so, like, remembering to take the you know, cheese out of the brine at the right time or remembering the other day I blew a batch of yogurt because I forgot to add the culture. I'd gotten the culture out, oh and I had one of my staffers that was with me, and yeah. she was so diligent. I had left for a minute to go talk to my husband that morning, and when I came back, she'd put the culture away thinking I'd already added it, and I didn't see it out, so it didn't clue me. So that evening, I went to get, and I went, this is just warm milk. There's no culture. Oh, didn't no. make it. And so we just had to toss it. So that that kind of, like, stressing about the little details like that. Yeah. Um, and the, the whole sanitation and regulatory part of it is a, is a stressor. Um, we are... Mm. Every month our milk is picked up and tested for bacteria and for other components of it, milk, uh, fat content, that kind of stuff. Our pasteurized milk is picked up every month to make sure that we're pasteurizing correctly. Um, I get, my equipment is tested quarterly. Um, Is that all the USDA that's doing that? That's all the state of West Virginia. okay. And then the USDA does um, unannounced visits whenever three times I've had an inspection where they just showed up at the farm wow and wanted to go through all my records my financial records all my purchasing records my you know course inspecting to make sure everything's clean you know the Hmm. the one day the the inspector was there all day and only thing she could find was one of my sanitizer strips was out of date so I felt really good (laughs) that's already good yeah but it was so it it is very stressful um that yeah, and I noticed that you, you um, have the grade A, which that's through USDA, right? Um, the- yes. Now I'm not on the interstate milk shippers list anymore. I okay. actually voluntarily withdrew from that because it was so stressful. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like yeah. I've heard that process, and of it getting was very that. small. I mean, what that would allow me to do is to bottle milk and transport it across state lines, uh, and also um, there's certain other that they consider grade A products: cottage cheese, yogurt is considered grade A. Um, but not cheese, not but not cheese. cheese. Huh. And if I don't call it yogurt, they they told me that if because because I technically I add 
rennet to my yogurt. Huh. It doesn't meet the legal definition of yogurt, so I can call it goatgurt, and that <laughs> I can sell across state lines without any problems. So we do that. Wow. Um, but yeah, the cheese is not a problem to transport across state lines, and that's 99% of what I sell is cheese. Right. I can sell milk. I do bottled milk, and I meet all the requirements for doing the, for grade A certification. I sell it within the state of West Virginia. You just don't go through the process of actually yeah. getting that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you you sell at um, DuPont Market, which is DC's biggest mm-hmm. market. Um, is that your your biggest? Yes. Yeah. That's our by far our biggest market, but we have a market that's 10 minutes from our house in Shepherdstown. Mm-hmm. And in terms of gross sales, it comes close. Huh. So it's pretty intense that it's 10 minutes, takes you know hardly any time to travel. There's almost no fees involved. And we have a, just a marvelous local community that really comes out and supports our farmers. So it isn't, you don't have to go to a big city. We give away way more samples at this market at DuPont because there's so many people coming through and tasting. So in some sense, it's an expensive market mm. to participate in, and there isn't that at the local market. Yeah. We sample, but not near as, as high volume. Right, there's so much tra- like we foot did, traffic. I did six markets last year, including Foggy Bottom, DuPont Circle, and Silver Spring. And this year I gave up those two markets and I only, the only market in DC I'm doing is the DuPont Circle. That was a really like to save my marriage and my sanity because <laughs> six markets say, a week okay. is really intense. Yeah. Right. And it has reduced overall the amount of cheese we're selling, but it it's much more profitable for us. We're selling more at each of the markets we're a part of. So it's been a good, it's been a really good decision for me. Right. And are you selling in any, and on like any other channels like restaurants or, okay. Yeah. We, not a whole bunch, but we're getting more. I just shipped off a bunch of cheese to a um, cheesemonger who does farmer's markets in San Diego. Hmm. And she is on a quest. She does, she, she sells cheese that she buys at the farmer's market and she wants to have representative from every state. And so we're like the 37th state or something. Um, And so she's selling our cheese out there. There's a um, wonderful wine and cheese shop in Wheeling, West Virginia, outside of Pittsburgh that um, sucks our couple of our cheeses. And I just shipped a order off for them this morning. Really encouraging. There's a store in Charlestown, um, Bushel and Peck that routinely carries our cheese. There's a few other restaurants and caterers, um, but most of it, almost, I would say 95% of what we sell is at the farmer's market. Right. So are there, like, what are the main benefits or and drawbacks to selling at markets? Like, is there anything that works really well at a market and then maybe something that is a challenge compared to other sales channels? Absolutely. The fun part is you get to interact with yeah. your customers and you get to, I get to talk about what I'm doing and I have people that are invested in where their food came from and how it's made. They're interested and it's really, really fun to mm-hmm. tell that story. Um, the hard part is exactly that too. It's customers and so um, there's, it, it's a demanding atmosphere mm. where you're having to be on. I'm not naturally a social person. Right. <laughs> I really like to be at the farm and work with the goats and work at the creamery. And so having to, be, it's exhausting for me to be on. Yeah. And then there's, it's, it can be expensive, especially we're sample, we sample everything that we sell. Um, and that's because when I don't sample something, people don't buy it. Hmm. They, they just, they don't know who I am, you know? Yeah. And, um, so that can be expensive. There's um, traveling, staffing expenses of being at the farmer's market. 
So labor is probably a huge expense because mm-hmm. obviously I can't be at all of them. Right. So. <laughs> if only. <laughs> no, it is interesting how we expect farmers to to be like so many different, do so many different jobs. You know, yes. you know, there's not many jobs where you're, you know, you're the producer, you're the salesperson, you're the, you're dealing with all the regulation. I mean, you're really doing right the financial. Part yeah, the fin- yeah. finances, like so many jobs. I mean, I think a lot of small businessmen that's do that. Yeah, but yes, the herdsman is a whole job in itself: raising healthy goats, managing what they're going to eat, managing the, you know, we produce our own hay, mm. so planting and growing and harvesting and getting the hay baled on time when we're not farmers naturally with yeah. a huge learning curve, deep learning curve. Um, and then the production of cheese and really wanting to make a good quality product and the artisanship that goes into that, I'd say probably at least 60% is the artistry versus just the technical side of things. Mm. And then the whole marketing is another whole hat that I have to, that I have to wear. Yeah. Personnel manager. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One other question I want to ask you about market. So I've been following a lot of stories about um, this new evidence that, you know, is kind of pointing to this idea that a lot of markets around the country are declining. You know, there's sort of um, saturation and and farmers are making less money at markets. Um, And, you know, I've seen no evidence. I haven't seen anything on D.C. in particular. um, But, you know, there was this... Um, study that said in Bloomington, Indiana, there was a 50% drop in attendance in um, Copley Square in Boston, similar, about 50% drop last year. And I've just been hearing that kind of anecdotally from farmers. I'm curious, have you experienced that at all? I haven't seen a drop in the markets I'm a part of, mm. but I am. I have not done markets that mm. I've looked at because I could. I knew that they there wasn't enough traffic right. to, to make it profitable for us. Now, we have a very small margin. I mean, it, the cost for me to make cheese and the cost to market it leaves a really tiny. I mean, they're, they're, before market, I figure it's uh, about six, 66% is the, of what I sell the cheese for is what it costs me to make it before I market. Mm. So I've got that 33% to pay for all my marketing costs and to make a profit, which is probably why I haven't made much profit. That's not true in all sectors. I think dairy is particularly tight. Mm. Um, but the um, I know that, that if you don't have, you kind of have this enough of a volume to generate, uh, you know, enough sales to mm-hmm. make it worth it. And that can be tricky. So we went, yeah. I went to a market um, the beginning of this year that, I just went once, and I knew when I went, like, there's no way that this is going to be enough. And it has to be well run. Yeah. You know, I think that it really takes a lot to get a market to work, to market it, to get people interested. You reach a critical mass, and then it kind of takes care of itself. But you have to get there. And if every little town or every, you know, every city has their own, I think it can be difficult to get that critical mass. Yeah. How do, yeah, how do we get... Like how can, um, how can we get more people to shop at farmers markets? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Because it is interesting. You know, there's sort of been this food movement over the past probably like ten years at this point, where it, it felt like for a while it was like go to the farmers market, go to the farmers market, and it's still not. You know, the vast majority of people are not doing that, right? The yeah. mo- most, even though markets are incredibly popular, most people are still going to grocery stores now. There's 
Blue Apron, you're getting your groceries delivered. How? What do you think in, like actually motivates people to get to a farmer's market? Well, I think the benefit of the farmer's market is the direct contact you get with your farmer. So yeah. you can ask the questions and you can find out and, and develop a relationship with your farmer. I love that about customers that that know me and know what I'm doing. And I can, with confidence, say, yes, this is what our goats are eating. Yes, this is the environment. Yeah, they're, this is how they're treated. And so you, you can't get that except at the farmer's market situation where you know your farmer. That's a real benefit of the mm-hmm. farmer's market. Um, but you're right, there's a lot of competition that's coming up where, where I think there are good alternatives mm-hmm. or where they're, they're, the farmer is getting better at direct marketing to the c- consumer outside of the farmer's market mm. setting. Um, I still think it's the best place to go, though. And so the more we can do to keep educating the public on why it's of benefit. Um, there's com- confusing studies, too. I mean, I have friends that you know, say, well, there's really no difference in organic versus not, or what, you know, whatever their, their, their mm-hmm. trend is at the time. And so it's it's honest research to say what really is the difference and why is this a better way to eat and mm-hmm. why is um, the cost that you're spending at the farmer's market, why is what, what are the hidden costs of the cheap food at the grocery store? Right. Why is it worth me to invest it? And we need to educate the public about why that matters. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> you are doing a great job. That's my job. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Um, Suzanne, um, thank you so much for being here. This was really, really great. Um, I'm, my only disappointment is that you didn't bring a goat. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know animals were allowed in the studio <laughs> until right. you saw Morris. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. It's lovely. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.